If you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Peter chapter 3. So, so far, Peter, as you guys know, he writes this book in the first century. Now, as you guys know that we've studied, what was happening in the first century to Christians? They were being martyred by the millions and millions. Some of the worst um, time of Christian martyrdom in history was around the first century. It wasn't until today and the day that we live in today that we have surpassed the, the, the persecution that's taking place and that took place in the time that Peter was writing. And so Peter uses the word suffering 16 times in 1 Peter. And the theme and the issue all the way has been suffering. And we come smack dab to the middle of chapter 3 in marriage. And Peter's talk, and it's Peter and he's talking about marriage. So do you think it's a coincidence or a mistake that in the book of suffering we come to the point where it's marriage? You know, the Bible says, and I, I don't think any of you guys have this highlighted or on your verse calendar or on your fridge. But the Bible says, if you marry, you will find trouble. That, that's, that's not a, a, a verse that we all have memorized. Now, now, kidding aside, the Bible also says that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. The Bible says that, that it's better to marry than to burn with passion. The Bible says, blessed is the man who has a quiver full of them. Speaking of kids, that's a blessing that, he, that kids are a blessing in the Lord. So life and marriage and family, the Bible tells us both and both are true. There's a lot of trouble, and you will expect trouble, and there's a lot of joy and a lot of fun. Now, now the question in marriage is, where do we want to spend our time? On that trouble side, and that promise of that verse that says, if you marry, you will find trouble, or on the side of joy and blessing and finding a good thing in a wife. And, and so we, we get, in the Bible, we, we get some instructions on marriage. Now, you know what's interesting about the instructions the Bible has about marriage? Let me try this again. When I'm done, you guys say, what? You know what's interesting about what the Bible has to say about marriage? It, it doesn't say a ton. If, if I could give you all the scriptures in the New Testament that deal with instructions for you in your married life, I think you could study them all and go through them all in about 12 minutes. Now, I want you to write down, if you take notes, and you should take notes in church, I encourage it. It'll help your spiritual growth. It'll help your Christian growth. Whether you ever go back and read the notes or not, it changes the way you listen. It changes the way you receive. And the Bible says, be careful and take note to how you listen and receive. But anyways, I want you to write down a couple of these verses, a couple of these places today. Number one, and, and, and I talk about it, I teach on it often. Um, the staple for marriage is found in Ephesians chapter 5. So write that down. Starting in verse 21, going through verse 33. Another place you should be familiar with is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Here in 1 Peter. And then Jesus has several places in the, in the Gospels where he addresses or touches on a few things regarding marriage. But, you know, the, the Bible doesn't, again, have this in-depth study on marriage. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, or I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1, we're, we're going to look at, let's read it so we catch it in context, and we're going um, to unpack marriage and then get specifically into what Peter, the part of marriage that Peter is dealing with here in 1 Peter. It says, likewise, or verse number 3, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. Already you guys are like, yeah, baby, this is going to be a good Bible study today. <laughs> Elbow in your wife. Be submissive. That even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment, ladies, be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty on of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Now, now, ladies, if God tells you in the Bible that it's precious, it's precious to him. Isn't that kind of perk up your antennas maybe a little bit and something that, that is precious to God in his sight? And here he's just giving you a pass. He's giving you like, hey, I'm telling you exactly what I want. I'm telling you what's precious to me. And, and, and maybe we should um, perk up. Our antennas should go up. And if it was me, you know, like when God says things that he hates. I'm always like, I read the list of things God hates because I want to be careful that I don't want to be on that list. And things that God loves, I want to be there. And here he tells us what's precious to him, what's precious in his sight. In verse 5 it says, For in this manner, in former times, holy women who trusted in God adorned themselves 
being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So marriage is um, very complicated, right? Would anybody agree? Or just me? Only, maybe it's only my house that's complicated. My wife. You know, there was a guy, he was walking down the beach, and he was he was very consumed by world peace. Matter of fact, he carried a map in his back pocket everywhere he went of the world so he could he could contemplate world peace and think about world peace and pray about world peace. And so he's walking down the beach of Southern California and he notices something shiny in the sand. And, and so he reaches down and he picks it up and, and it's a funny shaped bottle and he rubs it and a genie comes out. True story. And And, and the genie says... Whatever the genies say, Alibaba, Baba, Baba, you have one wish. And the guy's like, one wish? What happened to three wishes? I thought I got three wishes. And the genie said, well, hey, man, it's been hard times. You know, you, you get one wish, take it or leave it. So the guy gets excited and he pulls this map out of his back pocket. And he says, genie, I wish for world peace. And the genie says, oh, hey, world peace? He says, you have no idea. 6,000 years men have tried everything and tried to accomplish world peace. Do you know how much work that would be? Do you know what that would take to accomplish? That's nearly impossible to accomplish world peace. Can't you just wish for something else? That's not going to happen. So the guy puts his map away and he thinks for a minute. He says, okay, then I wish I could understand women. The genie says, let me see that map. (laughs) So it, it, it's complicated, right? It's, it's, it's a lot of stuff to think about. But what's interesting in the fact that, that it's so complex is that God doesn't give us a complex design or a complex unfolding of all this, this, this big issue that is marriage and life. That's a huge part of, of so many of our lives. Two rules. That's it. You realize in marriage, one of the, you know, the most important union that God created, he gave you two rules. One rule for the husband, one rule for the man. You've got to put them together to make two. The rule for the men is to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for. The essence of love is giving. And Christ gave his life for, for, for the church. And for the wife, it is to see that she respects her husband. This is all laid out in Ephesians chapter 5 where we get this staple for marriage. Now, I'm going to unpack it really quickly. And if you've been around here for any time, you've already heard me teach this and this principle of marriage. But I'm going to go through it for the sake of of anybody who hasn't heard it yet. But God has created man with a number one need and women with a number one need. And in marriage, there's one rule to meet that person's number one need. Now, now God created men with a need to feel respected. That's why the call of the wife is to submit to her husband. Now, we don't like that word submit, and we'll unpack that word submit as we go through this chapter. But at the end of Ephesians, in chapter 5, verse 33, Paul sums up what he just got through saying in the last 12 verses. And he says, "Um, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, so we can use that term respect. Now, my number one need as a man, the way that God created me is is to need respect. I, I need to feel respected. I need to feel macho. I need to feel in charge. And, and, and my wife's goal in marriage or a woman's goal in marriage is to meet that need that God gave me. And, and for a woman, it's different. And our society numbs this this whole respect thing down. And, you know, the Beatles said, all you need is love. And then they broke up, you know, and... Um, Everything is love, 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 love. Oh, we love each other. And the world is about love, 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 love. But the reality is the biblical truth is that, that, yeah, everybody needs love. Men need love. Women need love. Women need respect. Men need respect. But the number one need that a man has is respect. And differently, um, by God's design, the number one need that a woman has is to be loved. And God created her that way. Whenever we teach any marriage seminars, whenever we cover the topic of marriage, we come to this verse in Genesis, and it says, male and female, he created them. And, and, and we breeze right over that as we, as we think about that, and we don't pause, but there is so much to unpack in that one little statement that God says he created a male and female. And, and why is that? Because men and women are so different. Do I need to illustrate that to anybody? 
Like, you, you get two women together for the first time, and it's like, oh, my gosh, you got your nails done. They're so pretty. Oh, your hair. Oh, I love it. Did you dye it? And da-da-da-da. Nice, 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 nice. Right? Me and Shane haven't seen each other for a week and week together. And we're like, dude, that greasy beard, you bum, you're still wearing that thing. And you're still driving that piece of junk out there. And, you know, we're just different, right? You, th- there was a mom, and she, she wasn't going to allow her son to have anything to do with guns or violence or anything. And so at about three years old, with, with no exposure to any kind of weapons, he takes his peanut butter and jelly sandwich. He chews it into the shape of a gun and starts shooting everything around the house, you know, and it's, it's God-given. It's, it's, he's a boy. He's the way God created him. Uh, true story. I have a friend who's a, a full-time missionary in Russia. His older kids were born in the United States, and he has a daughter that was born while he was on the mission field in Russia. And he tells me, you know, all this, you know, feminine pink stuff and girls, that's all manufactured in high heels and this glamour stuff. That's all manufactured in the United States. And that's a, you know, that's the culture of the United States. My daughter was born in Russia. She's not exposed to all that stuff. She's not going to be like that at all. True story. By the time this girl was three years old, we got invited to a birthday party and we found out, asked Lydia what she wanted. And the mom's like, she doesn't care what it is as long as it's pink and it's fluffy and it's like boas with heels. And she was so pink and so female God, God created. And so God created us the way we are. And, and yet what happens in life is we get frustrated with our husbands, our wives, because they're not like us. And they're so different. And we're like, why do you got to be so insensitive? My wife says, you're such a lug. Why, why, didn't you, why don't you respond the way my girlfriend would respond if I told her this story? And, and she gets frustrated because her girlfriend would respond the way she would and very differently. And when I don't, it frustrates her. And for me, I'm like, well, why, why do we have to talk about it for half an hour? Can't we just like get to the point? And that's what would happen if I was talking to one of my friends. And why, why do we need to go through all the emotions of everything that happened? Like, let's just get to the point and move on. And, and I get frustrated that she's not like me and she doesn't respond like my buddies respond. <laughs> but the, the point being this, that God didn't make a mistake when he made your husband to smell the way that he does and to grunt. And, you you know, two two guys go away for a week on a fishing trip, hunting trip, whatever. That's what we like to do. We'll sit in a tree stand shoulder to shoulder for a week looking, waiting for something to come into our blind. We'll say like three words to each other in the week. And then they'll be, huh, huh, huh. We'll get home from the trip and my wife will say, oh, how was the hunting trip? And I'll say, it was fine. And she'll say, oh, you went with John. To, how's John's wife? And I'll say, John's married? <laughs> yeah, he's got kids. John has kids? You know, and, and I'm totally content. I'm, John's not mad at me. I don't feel like John's mad at me. I'm not upset. Like, we had a great time. She went away for a week with her girlfriend. And I better have some free time when she gets home. Because she's going to tell me everything about her girlfriend and her girlfriend's cousin and her girlfriend's sister's friends, nephews, aunts, and everything. And she's going to know everything about her is to know because they spent the whole week talking and communicating. And, and so men and women are very different. We, we, we understand that, right? But, but the problem in marriage that God deals with is that we, that, that frustrates us. Because we want, again, we want our wives to act like men. And, and women, you want your, your men to act like women or respond like women. But in reality, we don't really want that. But that's that frustrates us. So God lays it out that men naturally have a respect code. You know, again, me and Shane, we tease each other when we see each other. But we don't disrespect each other. We're just we're teasing each other. We're saying, you know, my wife says, you guys are so mean. I'm like, no, I'm not being mean. I'm just messing around. He knows I'm kidding. He's like, no, but it's so mean. It's like personal what you said. And I'm like, no, I didn't disrespect him. Like, because on guy code, right, I can tease you. But, but if I disrespect you, how, how do two men react when they disrespect each other? You know, those knuckleheads got to go outside and roll around on the ground, right? And prove who's tougher. Because that's, that's, what, that's what men do. But that's because they naturally understand a thing called a respect code. Now, now for women, it's, it's quite the opposite. Women don't really quite get that respect code. But they, what they naturally get, what God gave them and created them with, was a love code. And that's why women naturally communicate. They compliment each other. And they naturally respond with love. So here comes the problem in marriage. I don't need that love. What I need is respect. But, but she doesn't come, it doesn't come natural to her. 
And what she needs is not the respect code that I understand. What she needs is to be loved and, and, and felt like she's number one and cherished. And, um, but that doesn't come natural to me. So the question is like, well, God, you kind of messed that up, didn't you? Like if, if my wife needs love and I need respect, why don't you flip the roles a little bit and let her understand the respect code and me understand the love code and bada boom, bada bang, life's easy, baby. But he didn't do it that way. Why? The design of marriage isn't so much to make us happy. And I believe that God wants us to be happy in marriage and in life. And there's a lot of joy that comes from it. But God's design of marriage is to make us holy. And it is designed to make us holy. You have to die to yourself. I have to die to myself and do something that doesn't come natural to me. To learn how to be more like Jesus. To love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And, and it doesn't happen without the Holy Spirit in my life. It doesn't happen. The Bible says a threefold cord is not easily broken. That's a husband, a wife, and the Lord Jesus in a braided rope that, that's very strong. And, and, and it doesn't break easy. And so the, the, there's a process of, of Lydia having to die to herself to become more like Jesus, seek Jesus for his help, especially if you live with me, to, for Jesus to help, help her to, 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 to minister to that need that I have to be respected and, and vice versa. And, and so that's the process of us both getting closer to Jesus as we come together. That's God's design. Amen? So that, that's kind of unpacking um, Ephesians chapter 5 of marriage to equally yoked people who were married together who loved jesus who served jesus and and then we get over to first peter and it's a little bit different ephesians if you ever come to one of my weddings or two of my weddings you've heard a really dumb joke i tell at every wedding i do but in ephesians there's three verses that address the women and there's eight verses that address the wives and the first verses for the for the women are um wives be submissive unto your husbands and so i start and i read ephesians 5 in my wedding and and, and I, tell the, I tell the wives, be submissive to your husbands. And again, the wives, the husbands get all excited. Because in the mind, you know, in the mind for the husband, we're thinking like WWE, UFC, like submission, like, you know, tap out. Like I got you in a chokehold, camel clutch, you know, type of move. And you, you got you to gotta submit. But that's, that's not the godly submission, right, that, that God describes. But that's what we get in our mind when we hear that word. And, um, and, and then you read the three verses for the guys. And I always tell the guy, before you get too excited, the wife got three verses, you get the next eight. Because it takes more to explain to you what's going on. You know, you're not quite as sharp as she is. But um, in First Peter, in chapter 3, that, that's, that's exactly the opposite. We have six verses that are addressed to the women. And one verse that is addressed to the man. And the difference between Ephesians um, chapter 5, the staple of marriage, godly marriage, and First Peter chapter 3 is that um, primarily Peter is talking to equally yoked people in, in Ephesians. And Peter is talking to unequally yoked um, people in First in Peter chapter 3. Now, if you're new to church or new to that saying, you're like, what is wrong with this dude? Yoked? Why, why do I care how he scrambles his eggs? What, what, what's the big deal? Well, that, that's not... The, the term unequally yoked means um, being married or together with somebody who's not a believer. Now listen, just just flat out, this is black and white, not trying to beat around the bush or pull a punch. I'm telling you the truth of what the Word of God says. Do not be unequally yoked together with a non-believer. If you're single and you're with somebody who's not a believer in Jesus Christ, you're in disobedience to God's Word. That, that's, that's the reality. And, and so many times, you know, Christian people want a missionary date. They want to, oh, I'm going to lead them to Christ. Or I'm going to, you know, and, and it always goes south. And, and, and this is what you hear invariably. I prayed and I fasted and God told me I could marry that non-believer. Like, that's cute. But you're still a liar. Because God's word, it, God's not going to tell you to do something in your heart that he's going to contradict himself in his word. And the word of God says, do not be unequally yoked together with a non-believer. So God can't speak that to your heart. It's not true if, if you feel that's not God. Because it, it, will, it will ring true in the word of God if it came from God. Off topic, but you know, I'll hear people tell me in the area of forgiveness, the same thing. And I'll encourage them in forgiving and finding forgiveness in their hearts. And I've had it. I'm serious. This stuff happens. I'm not making it up. It happened recently. Come back after encouraging somebody. Man, we've been seeking the Lord and praying a lot and... We just don't feel like God really, really is calling us to forgive. All right, well, sorry, but that's just not true. It's impossible. God's word tells you to forgive. So don't be unequally yoked. That, that's just black and white. 
But, but what happens, and life is complicated in marriage, what happens if two people come together and neither one of them are saved? And, and one of them gets saved <clears throat> in the marriage, and now one is a Christian and one is a non-believer. What do we call that? What do we call that, people? We're learning? Unequally yoked. Now they've become unequally yoked. Okay, But they entered the marriage, and, and one got saved, and they entered the marriage just apart, apart from Christ. Then how do we do? Does, does now the, the believing person have to leave the unbeliever? What does the Bible say about that? Well, we have multiple places. Um, it happens often. Again, it's happened recently. And uh, a woman came to church here. She asked Jesus in her heart. She became born again. She started serving the Lord. Her husband is not a believer. Her husband's friend tells her husband, Oh, man, that's trouble. That's trouble. That church is going to tell her she has to leave you now. And she's going to find somebody else that's a Christian in the church. And that pastor is going to give her advice that you got to go. And, um, you know, and so she, 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 she's nervous. She's concerned for her husband because now somebody is speaking into his life about her newfound Christianity and faith in Christ that, that she's going to want to leave him. And, and she comes to Lydia and I and we encourage her. We bring her to this scripture and to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And, and the Bible does not doesn't teach that listen you don't leave if you're in a situation and 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 you're married and you're married to an unbeliever the the bible doesn't say for you to leave that situation the bible doesn't say the bible says for you to stay and and to be a witness now now there are and you guys got to read it for yourself there there are some um i guess i could say exceptions that are biblical and you can read them for yourself read through first corinthians chapter seven if you have questions before you you receive counsel from anybody else pray read those scriptures that i gave you and go through first corinthians chapter seven and, and it'll lay out those things now this is what peter is dealing with now again peter is um speaking in the first century now what, what do you think the position of women was in in this place that peter's writing to in the first century you think it was like the United States or do you think it was a little more like, you know, anywhere in the world, name a place, anywhere in the world where the gospel is not penetrated, the, what, is, what is the position of women? Pick one. Somebody pick Saudi Arabia. That's an easy one. Okay, let's take Saudi Arabia, for example. Um, it, in Saudi Arabia, it, it's a crime, it, punishable by death. They will take you to Chop Chop Square and they will cut your head off on TV and watch it on YouTube. If, if, if you convert a Muslim to Christianity in Saudi Arabia, if you carry a Bible in Saudi Arabia, it, it could be punishable up to death if you carry a Bible out in public in Saudi Arabia. It, it, when you drive near Mecca in Saudi Arabia, there's big signs on the freeway that say this is the last exit for infidels and infidels must exit now. And you as a non-Muslim or an infidel, if you accidentally miss that exit and you end up as a non-Muslim in Mecca, could be punishable by death. Not allowed to go there. The gospel has not gone um, or, or, or penetrated into, into Saudi Arabia. In Saudi Arabia, people are getting saved. Muslims are getting saved. It's the fastest growing group of people getting saved in the world as Muslims. And they're getting saved because the Lord Jesus is appearing to them in dreams and visions. Praise God. Amen. But what, what do you think it would be like to be a woman living in Saudi Arabia? I don't know what you'd look like. This is about all I'd ever see of you. Because the rest of you, know, the rest of you would be hidden from, from all, you know, anybody else but your husband seeing that much of you. You're not allowed to drive. You're not allowed to vote. You have no rights. You're possession of your husband. The imams teach them how to properly and according to, to, to Islamic law to, to beat you as if not to make you ugly. So not to hit you in the face and not to, but how to use the stick and where to hit you on your back and how to beat you and, and, and not make you ugly. No, no rights, no rules, possession of, of women in Saudi Arabia under, under Islamic law. Why? Because the gospel is not penetrated. But anywhere where the gospel has gone, it's elevated the position of women to where God's intended them to be. And a woman is not to rule over a man. She's not to be under a man. Matter of fact, the Bible says that there's neither male nor female, Scythian nor Greek, that we're all one in Christ. And that according to God, positionally, he doesn't put a man above a woman or a woman above a man, that that we are equal, we are one in Christ. And that's God's rightful place for a woman. He gives us a wonderful example of marriage between uh, Abraham and Sarah that we're going to see in a minute. But but, um, functionally, in a marriage, God gives roles 
be based on the way that he created you with the needs that you have. And the role that God has given a man is to be the leader of his house, to be the head of his house, to be the ruler of his house. And the rule that God has given a woman is to submit to her husband and to submit to his authority. And let me tell you something, man. If you treat your wife and you love your wife as Christ loved the church, she's going to have no problem submitting to you. She's going to have no problem following you. She'll follow you anywhere you want to go. I promise you that. Because God has created in her, it's okay. She's not like us. She doesn't, she's not macho. She's cool to follow. And she's, she wants to follow. She's created to, to love and to, and to follow where you lead if she knows you have her best interests at hand. And she knows that, that when you make decisions that you're, you're, you're thinking about her and the kids and the family and the life and, and what's best for everybody, she won't have a problem following you. She's not created with that same ego problem that we have. As men, we, we, we want to follow. We want to lead. We need to feel macho. And women, you need to let us lead. You know, a smart woman, she, she, she makes all the decisions in her house by, by making her husband think he's making them. Now, now that, that's a good woman. That's a smart woman. Because if you want to fight me over who gets to make the decision, then I don't care what the right decision or the best decision is. My first obstacle that I got to, the first challenge I got to get over, the first hurdle I got to get over is it's going to be my decision. And I don't care what decision it is, as long as it's mine. But if you let me lead and, and, you, and, and you, you encourage me, now I'm motivated. Now I'm like, uh-oh, I hope I make the right decision. Hey, what should we do, Lid? You know, like, make, because I want to make the right decision. And so, so this idea of submission. You know, ladies, one of the, uh, and I'm still on verse one. Life, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. Okay. Um, the, in Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve sinned. You guys know the story? Satan showed up and then God shows up after Adam and Eve sinned. And God does what? He pronounces the judgment or the curse upon both of them for their sin in the Garden of Eden. And for the woman, do you remember what, what, what is pronounced for you as your judgment? Number one, uh, not in necessarily order, but number one, that uh, you will um, give labor in pain. In pain. Part of the curse. Um, secondly, that your desire will be for your husband. Now, what what that basically means is that um, the the term is um, like a tiger pouncing on its prey and that your desire is going to be to pounce on your husband and and to dominate him and to control him and and that's a natural desire that 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 is is a curse that 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 you're going to have and that's where God, but God says in complete opposite to that, God says for you to submit to your husbands. And just, just realize that, that that's, that's a desire to rule, to lead, to, to, to be. But whenever you get a marriage that, you know, a husband either lets or a wife dominates her husband and she rules the house and she wears the pants. That saying is so funny, right? I know some of you guys are like, yeah, I took my pants off. I handed them to her. I said, yeah, try those on. Yeah, they don't fit, huh? I wear the pants around here. Yeah, all right, you tough guy. You're the same guy that was hiding under the bed from her, you know. She's telling you to get out from underneath the bed and fight like a man. <laughs> but ladies, speaking to you, and, and, and again, just in sincerity, that, that there is a curse that desires, and if you understand what that, what, it, what really in context what he's saying is that, you know, your, your, your natural tendency, your desire, the curse is going to be for you to dominate or pounce. And you have to fight that and be in submission to your husband. And, and, and you don't want to, you know, what happens in all those marriages is is that eventually the woman she 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 what she really wants is someone to lead and somewhere to follow, and 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 it always goes south when those roles get reversed and, and it goes bad. So so dying to that desire, seeking the Holy Spirit to let your husband lead and let your let let um, um, support him and minister to that need that he has to be respected. It's the godly position of a man, and then for men, for us to step up. And for us to um, lead spiritually in our home. And, and the key to leading spiritually is washing our wives in the water of the word. That's the key. It's keeping your wife in the world. It's the key to communication. It's the key to what, what he's going to say here in verse 7. That husbands should, should dwell with their wives with their understanding. Is, is being in the word together. Growing together. Loving them together. And making Christianity and Jesus first and foremost in your house. And that will guide and lead your house. So, um, so this call to wives to submit 
And then he goes on, he's talking about now for that wife who, who's married to, or was married, and she became a Christian, and he's not saved. It says um, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging of the hair, wearing a gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of the Lord. And then I want you to underline two words in verse 5 for me. This manner. For in this manner. In what manner? In what manner did these wives win their husbands for the Lord? In this conduct, this chaste conduct that, that Peter calls you ladies to, that, that is, is, a, is a respectful submission to an unbelieving husband in order to lead him to Christ. Now, does that mean we submit to um, anything? And I, I've heard this struggle. I've heard it again here where her husband doesn't want her to come to church. And, 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 that, and, and, and God is first. So it's not submission doesn't mean if your husband who's an unbeliever and you're you're trying to be obedient to first Peter chapter three and he says, hey, let's get wasted, drunk and and go rob the bank on the corner. Like, no, you don't have to submit to that. That That's against God's law. It's illegal. And um, that, that there are lines in the sand where it's not talking about under illegal or, or, or things that God still comes first. And so you're being disobedient to the word of God if you're if you're never in fellowship or your husband doesn't like it, so he doesn't want you to read your Bible, so you never open your Bible in the house. But what Peter's talking about is finding a way in respect and in chaste conduct to live your Christianity in a way that's that's respectful and loving, but yet firm in its decision that Christ is first in your heart and your life. And that as God sees that, I mean, as your husband sees that and sees that you, you, you're, you're going to treat him with respect and love and chaste conduct, but you're going to stand firm in your walk with Christ and you're putting God first in your life. So you say, honey, I'm going to church. I, I'm taking the kids. You make them a nice breakfast before you leave. And then you go to church and you come home when church is over. And, 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 and you know, maybe the afternoon is what he wants to do. Or you, you find a way to, to lovingly um, be firm and yet respective in your Christianity. Now, now, some people and some Christian women have, have just taken it overboard, right? And they're, they're so zealous for evangelism and they try all these different things and they're so over the top. And, you know, like they make their husband's lunch every day and he gets to work and he bites into his sandwich and there's like some paper in it. And he's pulling out paper and you put Bible verses in a sandwich, you know, and... He goes out to his car and you went out in the middle of the night and you you super glued his dial to Christian radio. And, you know, he can't change the radio station in his car because you super glued it to talk Christian radio. And, you know, you you hit him on the head with the Bible when he's sleeping or something, you know, and and it's just over the top and it's contentious. And this is what the Bible says. Now, this this verse, whenever I quote it, I always have to have you guys turn there with me just so that I don't get in too much trouble. You know, this comes from God's word, not from me. But really quickly, do me a favor. Turn with me to um, Proverbs chapter 21. Check it out. Verse number nine. This comes from God. Better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. (laughs) That's not me talking, ladies. That's wisdom from God's Holy Spirit telling you, encouraging you. Listen, your husband would rather live not not on the housetop. Like the housetop would even be better because maybe I'd have the range of the housetop. He even says in the corner of the housetop, like this little piece of the housetop, he'd rather live up there outside than live in the house with a contentious woman. But God's not done there with you guys. Look what he says to you in verse 19. Better to dwell in the wilderness... Than with a contentious and angry woman. He'll live out in the wild before he'd want to live at home with a contentious and angry woman. And and your husbands are frustrated and you're, you're nagging all the time. And you're, you know, he's never good enough. And there's never respect. And there's this all the time and constantly, constantly, constantly. But, but just the point is this, and it's not, it's not to, 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 well, maybe a little to belittle you if you do that, but, um, encourage you to stop but no that that's not the point to belittle you the point is to tell you this truth it doesn't work somebody say it doesn't work work. tell your neighbor it doesn't work work. 
tell that sweet gal next to you, it don't work. I want, I want to give you tools that work. And, and, and biblically, they just don't work. There, there's another one. And it says that, that a contentious woman, this one I always tease Lydia with. A contentious woman is like a dripping faucet. Do you know what they do? Like for, you know what a Chinese torture is? They lay you down and they just drip a, a water on your forehead. It doesn't hurt. It's just water dripping on your forehead. But they've found that it will literally drive you mad. It is the worst torture in the world to lay there and just have a drop of water on your forehead after time. For whatever reason, people will do whatever they want. If you'll stop, you'll turn that water off. And yet the Bible says that a, a woman who's contentious is, is like a dripping faucet to a man. So sometimes if Lydia's nagging about something, I'll go, drip, drip, drip. No, I don't recommend it. It doesn't go over well. It, 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 it really doesn't go over well. Yeah. But, but again, ladies, a reminder of a, of a type of conduct that God desires, an inward strength and beauty. And, and then he's going to go on. Let's look at verse number three. And he's going to lay that out. He says, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with incorruptible beauty of a gentle, quiet spirit, which is very precious. And with emphasis on the word quiet there, you ladies can understand, underline that one too. Verse four, quiet spirit with precious in the sight of God. And so, you know, First of all, I'm just going to say this, because some people take this verse to mean that Christian women should not um, adorn themselves with makeup and jewelry and and nice clothes because all those things are mentioned. But that's that's not what what the Bible's taught. And that's not what the Bible teaches. You know, Sarah, uh, Rachel were adorned with jewelry. They wore makeup. They, 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 in, in Song of Solomon, she encourages the ladies and she wants to look beautiful for her husband. And the Bible says that God looks on the heart, but unfortunately men look on the what? On the outside. And so it, it's not, it's not a forbidden, you know, some people say, oh, you can't wear jewelry and makeup and, and they don't, you know, and you go to some churches and it's forbidden because of this verse, no jewelry, no makeup. But if you take that same logic and you go down, it says apparel too. So what does it say? No clothes either? God wants you to come naked to church? I hope not. So that logic doesn't really make sense. You can't take that all the way down through. You know, and the Bible says bodily exercise. It says in what in Timothy? Bodily exercise profits a little. But godliness is with contentment is great gain. So that there is some benefit in taking care of yourself. And, and ladies, the, the, the truth is, created by God, by God's design, that, that men were, were attracted physically, okay? Were attracted visually. And, and it's important. It's an important aspect of marriage and of, you know, taking care of yourself, looking nice for your husband, trying to, husbands telling your wife how beautiful she is when she does that and appreciating her for those things. But that, that's not, and what he's telling us is that that can't be our focus. It can't be our only focus. That, that, that really that real character comes from your heart. To me, you could see the most, on, on first look, the most gorgeous, beautiful, put-together woman in the world. And if you talk to her for five minutes and she's empty inside and, you know, and she, she's, she's just foul, immediately unattractive. I care what she looks like on the outside. The quality of the heart just makes her unattractive. You take plain Jane, who just has a great personality and is a good person, loves people, and is funny and, and bubbly and... Man, that's super attractive. That, that inward beauty is so attractive and so, so appealing. And that's what God's talking about, a, a, a godly woman that that beauty comes from inside. That's what I always say, and I think it's the best compliment, and it's true, of my wife, is that she's beautiful both inside and outside. In Proverbs 31, ladies, if you're not familiar, that's another scripture for you today. I ask you to write down some notes. Write that one down. Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman, and you read that, and in there God gives descriptions and character of, of a godly woman and what a virtuous woman is to look like and how you're to look like as a, as a beautiful woman of God. And, and, and the reality is, as you guys know, our society is completely upside down. Who, who's, who's the most famous family in our society? Without a doubt. And, and now we have the younger two who are taken up where the older two um, left off. The most empty, um, you know, vain, ugly inside people. But yet society doesn't care. 
You know what's interesting about that whole Kardashian family? Sorry, the rabbit trail here. But someone mentioned it one time. I was watching someone reading something, and it just kind of rung true to me. But they started going through the men that have been in the Kardashian women's lives and what's happened to them and where they ended up. It, it really is. It kind of goes ding, ding, ding. Like, wow, that's interesting. But I mean, Bruce Jenner, they turned him into a woman. <laughs> I mean, completely outside of his head. They took Lamar Odom and put him in a hospital on his deathbed. I mean, it just on and on and on and on and on. Just, just, but just the fruit of an empty lifestyle that, that everything becomes about the outside. And our society glorifies them. Most popular family in all society. The, the joke is, what do the Kardashians do? They're multi-bazillion gazillionaires. And they don't do anything. Nobody knows what they do or they don't sell anything or work anywhere. They're just famous because they're, they're vain. And because they set the example, and how, how heartbreaking is that? That, 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 that? that as parents in the United States, that, that we set them up as an example. We allow our kids to, to look at that and think that that's where it's at. And, 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 you know, when's the last time you, what's the cover of every cosmopolitan magazine, you know, and every newsstand say? How to get your body, how to get the beach body by summer. How to, how to get killer abs. How to have great sex life. When's the last time you saw the cover of a Cosmopolitan magazine and it said how to, ha- how to be an, uh, a beautiful woman of God from the inside out? Never. The answer is that never. You guys with me? You awake? When's the last time you saw that on the cover of a Cosmo? Never. Because, because it's not society. It's not, it's not important. But according to God, according to God's economy, it's important. And that inner beauty, and, and Peter specifically is talking about wives in a situation but it applies to all women here that this character of outward beauty and let it be a thing of the heart and then peter goes on and he says in verse five for in this manner right in the manner we just been talking about in former times holy women who trusted in god also adorned themselves being in submissive to their own husbands what were they ladies to their own husbands you guys all right you guys like the fawns anybody remember the fawns trying to say sorry he just couldn't say it. The words wouldn't come out of his mouth. Are you ladies like that with submissive? You guys did pretty good. You were cool with it. Um, verse 6. As Sarah obeyed, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do well, are not afraid of any terror. Now, Abraham and Sarah have become for us, um, in multiple places in the Bible, an example for a godly marriage. Did they have a perfect marriage? Not at all. You know what Abraham did? Now, Sarah, like at 90 years old, was, was a smoke show. She was hot at 90 years old. So they're going down to Egypt. And, and, and Abraham is afraid that the Pharaoh is going to want to take her into her harem. Now, usually if a woman's 90 years old, and you're, she's probably safe, right? She's staying by your side. You don't worry about it. But not Sarah. Like Abraham's worried. So Abraham tells Sarah, hey, when we get down there, they're going to kill me so they can take you as a wife. So just lie to them and tell them you're my sister. So they go down and Sarah goes along with it and she lies and tells Pharaoh that she's she's Abraham's sister. And and, and then Pharaoh starts rewarding Abraham handsomely for for Sarah, really. And he gets all this stuff and Abraham becomes wealthy through the thing, you know, and he's getting all kinds of loot. and He gets to keep the loot in the end. And, And then Pharaoh becomes very sick before he can go into Sarah. And God shows up and he says, hey, you're in big trouble. You've taken another man's wife to be your wife. And he, this man is a prophet and important to me. And the guy comes to, to Abraham is like, why'd you lie to me, dude? Why'd you mess me up? Like, she's your wife. You told me she was your sister. And, and, and Sarah goes along with it. And, and le- you know, by the grace of God, Pharaoh wasn't able to consummate a marriage and take her into his harem. And, and then Pharaoh sends Abraham away. And Abraham comes out smelling like a rose. He's rich. He's all this stuff that the guy gave him now. Sarah's the one that had to go in the harem and not know what was going to happen. And Another time in their marriage, um, the Lord shows up. And you guys know the story. Abraham and Sarah were, she, she had passed menopause. She was physically unable to have babies. Um, Abraham was 100 years old. And the Lord showed up and told them they were going to have a son. They had no children. They were going to have a son. And that from his line, the, the, the godly line would come. Messiah would come. That, that, that Abraham would be the father of a multitude of children. 
And when, when Jesus, it says that Jesus and two angels, they show up to Abraham, the, 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 the angel of the Lord, which is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. He shows up, and Abraham's having this conversation with him. And, and, and they say to Abraham, your, your, your wife Sarah will have a child. And it says that Sarah was listening by the tent. You ladies don't, don't eavesdrop, do you? I always call it eavesdropping. But you know the official term is eavesdropping. Because Eve was the woman and dropping, you know, I guess something you ladies do. I don't know. You stand by the door and listen. You check all our text messages and our Facebook. And Side note. Um, so Sarah is, is listening and she laughs. Although Sarah's laugh is a laugh of disbelief. And she, there's no way. And she says, how can that be? And then she calls Abraham Lord. She says, my Lord is, is well and advanced in years and I'm past the age of childbearing. And Abraham also laughed, but Abraham laughed a laugh of joy and of belief and of faith. And, and, and the Lord actually called Sarah on it. If you guys remember the story in Genesis 18. And, and God says to Abraham or to Sarah, why did you laugh? She says, I didn't laugh. <laughs> Liar! And the Lord says, no, actually you did laugh. And it was a laugh of unbelief. And they went on and they named a baby. What did they name the baby? They named it, what does that mean? Laughter. Literally in the, in the Hebrew, the, the, the name is, <laughs> that, that's his name. That's Isaac's name. It's laughter. And, and, and he laughed and Abraham laughed. But in that moment, Abraham had a vision and believed God and had faith and stepped out. And, and that's what Peter is pointing to that story when, when Sarah called him Lord because she submitted to his godly leadership at the point. She didn't have the faith. She laughed in disbelief. And, and she had to trust and believe her husband's leadership. And Abraham had the faith. And, and Lord, <coughs> it does say, right, that um, as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord, this is an example for you ladies, calling your husband's Lord, right? You guys want to practice? Just kidding. In the last service, somebody was looking at me like, like they were serious, like, I really hope he's kidding. He's joking, right? Like, I know, he doesn't really expect me to call my husband Lord. No, I don't. And, and it, it wasn't term Lord that it, small L, small O, small R, small D. It was a term of respect that, that Sarah used for Abraham. And then the last thing as we fast forward is, um, so, so, Abraham, Sarah respected and followed Abraham's lead. And Abraham wasn't, although he's the father of faith, you know where Abraham's biggest struggles were in his life? In areas of faith. He struggled in faith. He had huge lapses of faith. And still he's the father of faith because God gives him the credit for all the good stuff and, and forgives all the bad stuff. But Abraham's hugest lapses were faith and he's the father of faith. And yet Sarah followed him and let him lead even though he made mistakes in their lives. And even though he took her down to Egypt and made her lie, and go into some guy's harem. She followed him. And then later in their lives, there's a story that God records. And Abraham makes a decision for their family. And Sarah doesn't agree. And, and, and God comes in the situation. And he says, Abraham, you're wrong. Listen to your wife, Sarah. She's right. And you're wrong. And, and there's a wisdom in marriage and in life that two agree together. And that you take the wisdom of your wife. And that God has given her a position and, 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 and that submission doesn't mean that she's not a part of the marriage or she doesn't help make decisions. I think in a healthy marriage and, and Lydia and I's rule that, that we try to abide by is that we don't do it unless we agree together and we agree together and we receive counsel. And there, it's very seldom, I think, in the system that, that we try to operate under where we get to that position where we just can't agree. And, and as the head of the house, I have to make a decision. And, and so, you know, she at that point has to decide. Usually before then, she'll decide that, okay, um, I'll, I'll submit and you, you can lead. But God tells Abraham, you know, hey, shut up. Listen to your wife. You're wrong this time. And she's right. And the wisdom in that. And then in verse 7, we got the guys and then we're going to receive communion. I, I spent the whole time talking to you ladies. I only got one verse for the guys. We can do it in about five seconds. So, or should I do it next week? Take a whole week on it. Now, let's, 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 let's just quickly listen. Husbands, verse 7. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So, um, are, are you the 
as, as the LDS church, I believe, and I'm not a scholar there, teaches that the husband has a, an elevated role in heaven and, and he calls his wife up or he, he has a position in heaven that's above. But, but here, uh, according to what Peter says, is that as we, we, we look towards eternity, it says that we're heirs together of the grace of God. We're heirs together of the kingdom of God. And, and so again, it speaks of that equalness in Christ. That a husband and a wife are on level playing fields, that they're equal in Christ. And that's Christ's position and Christ's, Christ's goal. Not, not roles um, practically in marriage. And then the last part of 7, well, we'll start with the last part and then we'll go backwards in verse 7. It says that your prayers may not be hindered. So men, if your relationships this way, horizontally, with your wife, with your family, with your friends, if your relationships this way are not right, and specifically here with your wife, then this relationship will never be right. And that forms the shape of a cross, right? And so, um, you know, it's the fastest way that, that God will attack your ministry. Your life is through your marriage. You're newly married. You're newly in ministry. Just know God's going to attack your ministry. I was telling Jason yesterday, and, you know, we spent some time together. And for Lydia and I, and he's, he's coming up. He's, he's taking the youth group over and um, has a heart to serve God in ministry. And I told him, listen, the first place where the enemy's going to attack your ministry is through your marriage. Because if he can destroy your marriage, he can destroy your ministry. And for Lydia and I, we, you know, that's an area where the enemy has attacked us relentlessly through our, our entire ministry is through our marriage. And, and, you know, it's one of the reasons why our marriage is strong. It is because we, we've had to fight battles and fight, you know, and, and besides the fact that, you know, her dad was a senior pastor. And when I married his daughter, I was like married like two weeks and he gave me a stack of marriage books like this big. And he said, not kidding. And he said, hey, next week you're teaching the marriage class. I'm like 23 years old. I've been married like two weeks. I know nothing about marriage. And, and, and yet he wanted to make sure I got it right. So he just kind of threw me in the deep end and started doing marriage ministry. Like after I was married for a week and every week he'd give me a different book that I had to study and read and to get it figured out, you know, and still haven't figured it out yet. But um, where was I going with that? Oh, yes. Satan attacking our marriage. You know, it's like, where, where do you think for Lydia and I, the, the attacks come invariably? Saturday night, right? Got to preach on Sunday morning. Lydia teaches on Tuesday nights. You know, Monday night, Tuesday afternoon, we have a fight. And, and, and when we're not right, or if we're in the old, you know, not talking, cold shoulder phase, I, 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 don't, I can't really go to the Lord and, and seek the Lord. My prayers are hindered, and that's not right. I got to get that right, and I know it. And I can't come preach if we're not right. So, you know, what we do now is we stop talking about 8 o'clock on Saturday night. I get up way before she gets up. We don't talk on Sunday morning. We drive separate cars to church. We, we, beat, we beat Satan. He, he, we, just, we just don't. We don't fight so that prayers aren't hindered before. But, but that's an area. And, and, and men, you have to get that right. You have to be right. You have to keep that right. And, you know, and, and you can't. If it's not right, your prayers are hindered. That's a promise that God's not hearing those prayers. And then um, as we move back through it, it says um, dwelling together with understanding. Now, I already told you guys, understanding your wife, that's a tough one. But at the same time, it's not rocket science. It's really not. I was joking. And, and yes, we're all complicated. But the, the, the goal is still the same for all of us is to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And, and again, the way that you know somebody and the way that you understand somebody is you listen to them, you spend time with them, and you're in the Word together. And you study the Word together. And you read the Word together. And you spend time in the Word together. And, um, and, and you, you, you become best friends with that person as you dwell with them with understanding. And the understanding, I think, that he's talking to is not that you have to figure them out. By the way, you know the thing about men. I'll get you men in trouble real quick. Um, you know, women, they're naturally like, my wife knows what all the boys like. Like we go to the grocery store and she knows which cereal and which candy and which cookies and what to dinner. And she's like, I know, like, oh, Luke likes that one. And Nathan likes that one. And every year on Christmas, like I, I get embarrassed. I'm like, what, what kind of candies do you like again? What do you want in your stocking? You know, like I forget these things that are natural, like what she likes. And I think after like 18 years, I think I figured out what kind of pizza she likes. I know that one. But we, we, we don't, as men, we don't pay attention to those things as much. And I don't know, it just doesn't come natural that we don't 
understand and know the things about her. I was going to take a poll and start asking you guys some questions about your wives, but I'm going to, I'm going to keep you guys out of the doghouse today. It's football Sunday. I want you guys to be able to go home and enjoy the football game today and not get you in trouble finding out what. Don't get in the car and be like, okay, what's my favorite color? What color are my eyes? <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm almost going to share that advice for the men, but we'll leave that one out. Um, And then the last one, it says to honor your wife as the weaker vessel. And then we're going to receive communion uh, as a family of believers. Where, here Peter's talking about, he says your wife is a weaker vessel and to honor her that way. And and where is your wife weaker than you? So if we think, um, what about, what about if a husband and wife are both sick? Who's a bigger baby, the man or the woman? Definitely a man, right? Like, like men are babies when we're sick, you know? And I tell Lydia, the whole reason, the real reason why I do that is because you won't give me no sympathy. So I really got to pray, you know, put the dog on to try to get some bowl of chicken soup around here, you know? But the reality is men are babies. And as far as emotional strength, yeah, yeah, women are emotional, but it has nothing to do with their strength. I, I watched the strongest woman that I've ever seen walk through her mom dying slowly of, of pancreatic cancer. And the, the depth, but yet the, the depth of character and strength of, of, of what a strong woman looks like. And emotionally and in that area, way stronger than me. So it wasn't in that area. So what, what area is Peter talking about where, um, where, where men dominate women? You want to arm wrestle? Um, I could probably take her to that one. Um, when Lydia and I first got married, I, I grew up with four sisters. And so my sister, Denise, she's in the middle somewhere, but she's about eight years old, seven or eight years older than I am. And so, and, and, you know, I don't make excuses for my family, but it's dysfunctional, but we didn't just like, we fought like physically fought, you know, and, and my sister beat me up all growing up. And I can remember like the first time I, it was like seventh grade, I think maybe eighth grade. I got her for the first time and I beat her up. She didn't mess with me anymore after that. That was like when I got old enough and big enough, she stopped beating me up. But my sister beat me up all growing up. And then, um, coming into marriage, you know, Lydia and I would do like the rough and tumble and try to play. And I was terrible at it. I would always hurt her and she'd get mad and she bruises easy. And I just never, so we just decided really early in marriage, like, Okay, that that's never going to go well, you know. It's just not not try to wrestle and play fight because it's not good. And um, and and here, you know, it, it's never okay, man. It's never okay under any circumstance to put your hand on a woman, right? That's that's biblical. That's official. And that it, you give, um, as it says, husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Amen? Amen. Let's turn the lights off, you guys. Uh, We'll have the worship team come up. We're going to um, share in communion in a moment. And if you're, again, if you're new or if you're not familiar with how we receive communion, basically, um, we're going to invite you guys to come on up um, here in a moment and take the bread and the cup and go back to your seat. And then just depending on how long it takes, we'll give you a song or two. And what our heart for you this morning is, is that you would spend some personal time with the Lord. My, my job as a pastor is um, to, to just share the word with you. Share the word with what, you know, bringing the word together, uh, encouraging you in the word, teaching the word. Um, but your relationship with Christ is personal. It's between you and the Lord. It's, it's, it's cultivated, it's motivated, it's encouraged, it's grown in your personal devotion life, in your prayer life, in, your, in what you really say in your heart. You know, you can laugh at some of my silly jokes, but, you know, it, it, what, what really you say to the Lord in your heart is, what, is where the value is. And so we desire here to give you an opportunity in, in, in our service to, to spend some quality time with the Lord. It's a song, a song and a half, two songs if necessary. And so you'll, you'll come up and you'll, you'll take the bread and the cup and you'll go back to your seat and um, spend some time praying and, and, and seeking the Lord and receiving communion. And, and then as the worship team plays, when you've finished your prayer time and your communion time, you can just stand and worship, continue to sit and worship and worship the Lord. And I want to share with you guys uh, about communion and why we receive communion and uh, what we're doing here today.
in Luke chapter 22. It says, when the hour had come, Jesus sat down with the 12 apostles with him. And he said to them, with fervent desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks. And he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. The Lord Jesus told us is as often as you receive communion, do it in remembrance of me. And so we, we, we remember the price, the terrible price that Jesus paid on the cross for our sins. Every part of communion is a reminder of his body and his blood that was shed. The cracker that you see now all broken up comes in a square sheet. It's called matzos and it, it has lines in it. And those lines remind us of the stripes that they put upon Jesus's back. They took him to a place there on the temple mount called the Roman Praetorium. And, and on, the, on the floor of the praetorium, they would have put his hands over his head and stripped him naked and put a soldier on both sides because not one soldier physically could, could administer the beating. It took multiple soldiers and sometimes they would tag a new guy in because the guy would be so exhausted from taking this torture thing. It was called a cat of nine tails and it was a handle and it had nine leather straps and at the end of each strap would be glass and 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 metal shards and things that would rip and they would whip it across your back and from one side and the other and it would grab the flesh from your ribs and rip across your back as they whipped you with the cat of nine tails it was so effective that criminals would just confess all their crimes and every crime they confessed they would give you one less lash and they would take away lashes every time you confessed the crime but jesus had no crimes to commit so he took all 39 lashes his sentence was 40, but because the Romans were merciful, they only gave him 39. And then, and then the, the bread has little holes in it. It reminds us of the holes that they put in his hands and in his feet and one in his side as blood and water came out. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. They ripped the beard from his face and they spit loogies on his face. They, they, they took the cat of nine, or I'm sorry, they took the cross and they, they put it on his back after he had been beaten and scourged. And they forced him to carry his own cross from that place called the Roman Praetorium where he was beaten down a famous strip of road that we know as the Via Dolorosa on the way up to Calvary. And, and, and as he carried that cross down the Via Dolorosa, you guys know the story, he would collapse under the weight of it. And the soldiers would kick him and they would hit him with the back of their spears and they would yell at him, get up. And he would muster everything he had and he would get up and he would continue his walk down the Via Dolorosa carrying that cross for you and I. And he would collapse under the weight of it one final time and the soldiers realized it didn't matter how many times they kicked him. It didn't matter how many times they beat him and yelled at him and screamed at him. He physically could not take another step and they called the guy from the crowd to come and carry Jesus' cross the rest of the way up to Calvary. When he got up to Calvary, they put nails in his hands and in his feet. And they raised him up on a cross. And as we take the bread, I often break it in my hand because the, the Bible says, Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. And by my stripes, you're healed. And then we take the cup, which represents his blood that was shed for us. And the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It's by the pl shed blood of Jesus that we should have, have forgiveness of sins. And so the, the first part of communion as you receive it today is to remember the Lord and be thankful for the price that he paid for your sins. And then the second part, Paul was teaching the Corinthian church years later and they were doing what we're going to do today and they had it all messed up and we're doing it wrong. And, and, and Paul writes up a letter and he says, hey, these are some things you're doing wrong in communion. And, and, and Jesus instituted and we should do it as a church, but fix it and do it this way. And Paul told the Corinthian church that communion is a time of self-examination. It's a time to get out a mirror and look at your look at your life and just see if there's something God wants to change or fix or or grow or do in your life. So that's what we're going to uh, invite you guys to do now and encourage you to do. Thank the Lord and remember to me. Search your heart and, and really specifically on marriage today because that was the topic of the sermon today was was just healing in your marriage. We want to see healing in your marriage. We want to see healing in your life. We want to be a part of that. We want to help with that in any way we can. We'll be up front to pray for you. 
we, uh, we, we offer counseling if anybody needs help and the tools, the right tools to, to fix marriage or something going on in your marriage. And again, if you, if you have never asked the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart or you're not sure you're born again in here today, if you don't know that you know that you know, if you died today that you were going to heaven, use this as a time to get your heart and life right with the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive Him into your life as your Lord and Savior and say yes to Him. Respond to the call of the Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you so much for this bread which represents your body broken for us. We thank you, Father, for this cup, which represents your blood shed for us. And, Father, we do it in remembrance of you. And, Lord, I pray for marriages in here. I pray, Lord God, for, uh, for each one of us as we get out the mirror, in our marriage specifically, we stop elbowing the other person because the problem is not the other person. The problem is us. And, Lord, help us to change and get right. And, Lord, I pray for anybody in here who's not a believer or has never made a commitment to Jesus Christ that right now, that as I pray, they would say yes to you, Lord. They would say, Jesus, come into my heart and be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.